Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Robbinsville. Thank you for joining us. We trust that the teaching of God's Word will speak to you. All right. Thank you for singing along with us, church family. And we are very excited about one more week to think about this idea of the seeds of Christmas and what that means for us and the birth of our Savior. So this year, as I was getting ready for Christmas, you know, you probably all can relate to that person on your list who's really hard to buy for, right? That person that just, you know, some people just, you flow through and you got ideas right away, but then there's always that one or two people you just really struggle with. So what do we do in those instances? Of course, we turn to Google, right? Google, help me find a present for somebody I don't know what to buy for. And so I, I read through a bunch of those this year for, this, for a couple of people on my list. And one of the things that kept coming up over and over of a gift to get somebody you don't know what to get is one of those like DNA kits. You know what I'm talking about? Like the 23andMe where you spit in a little cup and send it back and then they give you all this information about your family and where you're from and all that kind of stuff, right? Because all of us, we kind of have this thing within us that probably wants to know a little bit about our history. Where did I come from? What's our story? And maybe we just wonder, like, it'd be kind of cool to be going through our genealogy and see somebody like famous on there, right? To know, like, I'm related to some president or something like that. Well, I love to tease my wife. And one thing I did a number of years ago, I convinced her that Trevor Buchanan was a long distant relative to the president, James Buchanan. And I, I carried this on, I let it go, and I told her, like, you just gotta talk to Trevor about it. I mean, like, that's his relative, you know? And she was just floored that some guy in Robbinsville would be related to a president. Sadly, we don't know that that's true, but we can, we, can, we can imagine and hope, right? As we're thinking about the lineage of Jesus, and you think about back in Old Testament times, if you were a member of the, the, the nation of Israel, obviously all of them came from Abraham, but there would have been incredible pride if you could look back in your genealogy and say, I'm related to King David. King David, the greatest king our nation has ever known, the king who built our nation, the king who restored worship to our nation. I'm a relative of King David. That'd be pretty cool to say. Well, it's fascinating when scripture gives two different genealogies of Jesus, probably one of Mary's and one of Joseph's, both of them are traced back to King David. And so in Luke chapter 3, as we're continuing on this study of the genealogy, we see this little piece of Jesus' genealogy. The son of Malia, the son of Manan, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. This is a big deal. And now as we're going to think about this and study today, Jesus not only was a long-distant relative of King David, he didn't just look back at his genealogy and see David back there. Instead, Scripture adds something very unique to Jesus. He's not just a relative of David. Instead, he is the one whom God told David would one day be coming to rule and reign forever. And so it's here I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word, as we read the inspired word of these wise men from Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he 
who has been born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Let's pray. Father, help us to see today the reality of what this verse is saying. That your son was born the king. Not only the king of the Jews, not only the king of Israel, but the king of the universe. Father, if we don't know that and understand that reality, please help us, help this to become real in our lives today. Help us to see that this is true and this is what, is, what, is, what you say is accurate, that Jesus is the king. And Father, we pray that that reality would become very personal for every single one here. That Jesus would not only be king of the universe, but he would be king of our lives as well. Father, I pray if there's someone here who doesn't know King Jesus, that today would be the day where they come to know him and accept the free gift of salvation and choose to follow him in a lifelong pursuit of discipleship, making him the king of their life. That is our desire today, to know the king more. Pray that you would bless and guide our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here, these wise men, they come, and they didn't just see Jesus, they saw a king. And now, what made that hard to believe is because there's nothing about Jesus' birth that is particularly kingly. We know, of course, in history, some people are born as future kings. But Jesus wasn't born as a future king. He didn't rise to be king. He didn't become popular enough to take on the throne. He, in fact, was born the king. Now, as we step back, and we want to trace this through the Old Testament to see what are these guys talking about here, because this is a very significant reality that these wise men knew and understood. And so we've been talking about the genealogy of Christ, and we've studied a lot of the patriarchs. And so I want to go back once more and look at the life of Abraham. And when we were talking about Abraham, do you remember God made a covenant with Abraham? A covenant's a fancy word of saying a promise. So God came down to Abraham, this man who didn't deserve it, wasn't living a righteous life. God came to Abraham and he made him these incredible promises that said, Abraham, these promises that I'm making are going to guide our relationship. And part of the covenant that he made with Abraham is this. In Genesis 17, he told Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. Now, we think of the covenant with Abraham, we think of that first part. We know that God told Abraham, your, your, your seed is going to be more than the stars of the sky, and I'm going to give you all these lands, and you're going to become a great nation. But sometimes we miss that last part, that God also promised Abraham, kings are going to come from you. And so we see here, before there was ever a king in Israel, God had the idea of a king in mind, right? This is before before Abraham knew anything about what a king would be like, God was saying, one day there's going to be a king to rule my people. Well, as this story unfolds, there's a lot of very specific things that God is looking for in a king. He wants the king to be a man that he chooses. He wants him to be a man who fears the Lord and wants to honor him and follow God's ways. He wants this king to be a man who puts the needs of his people above himself. And so God was very specific in the kind of man he was looking for because he knew the kind of king who rules my people is going to greatly affect the life that they live. But, as often is the case with human nature, 
the people, they continued to wait and to wait for this king to show up. They waited for when is God going to send this king who's going to lead us and protect us and represent us. And they waited, and God didn't seem to send this king. And so a little while later, in 1 Samuel, all of the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So here in, this, in the history of the, Israel, the people of Israel at this point, they didn't have a king, but they had these prophets. They had these leaders who were leading them. And Samuel was one of these leaders, but Samuel was getting old, and his, his sons were not men that the people wanted to be led by. And so kind of as their patience was wearing thin, and they said, we need somebody to lead us, they came to Samuel, and they said, give us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Now think for a minute what they're actually saying right there. What the nation of Israel, this special set-apart people who was to be led and ruled by God, what were they saying? We want to be just like everybody else. We want to be like all the other nations. We, we don't want a God who we can't see leading us. We want a man. We want somebody sitting on a throne who we can look to, who we can be proud of, who we know represents us. We want a king like everybody else. Now, this is a problem because up to this point, the nation was being led by God himself through these special people like Samuel and different prophets. But the people grew impatient. And as we think about that, that's so, that's so much like our own human nature. And so this chapter goes on. Samuel went to the Lord and was very concerned about this. And look, what, look how the Lord responds. The Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now, therefore... Heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So listen to what God does here. Very fascinating. The people say, we want a king just like everybody else. What did God recognize in that? What the people were really saying is, God, we don't want you. We want somebody who we can see, who is right before us, who we can talk to. We want to be like everybody else. God is saying, the people have rejected my leadership. And what does he do with that? He tells Samuel, give them what they want. Let them go. If they want a king, give them a king. Isn't that amazing? God, the king of the universe, doesn't demand his kingship over anyone. He longs to be the king of his people. But if people reject him, he lets them go. He doesn't force his rule. He doesn't force his reign in any individual's life. And he doesn't even do it with the nation of Israel here. He lets them go. But he does tell them, Samuel, I want you to warn them. I want you to tell them how badly this is going to go for them if this is the direction they want to go. And so the next verses of 1 Samuel chapter 8 are really sad verses. Samuel goes through and he tells them, this new king, he's going to take your money. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your livestock. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take them to battle because all he's going to care about is expanding his land and his name. And your sons are going to die because of his own pride. You think if you heard a warning like that, that God, that came from the mouth of God himself, you would think you'd listen to that, right? But what did the people do? Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, 
We will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, when you put this on a national scale, it's really sad. This whole nation rejecting God and saying, we don't care about the warnings. We don't care about what you say is going to come. We're going to risk it because we want a king like everybody else. But look how confused they were in their own mind. What did did they think this king was going to do for them? They thought this king was going to go out and fight their battles for them. What's that mean? They thought this king was going to fix all their problems. They thought this king was going to take their broken circumstances and make them better. They didn't like how God was leading them. So they said, if we get the right king, he's going to give me everything I want and do things just as I think they should be done. And so they reject the Lord. Now, if we think about this, this is a very common part of human nature. Starts out with this idea of we reject God as our own king. And we start to look for other people or other things who we think will fix the problems that we have. Even though God over and over and over warns us, if you reject me and look to solve your problems by yourself, it is not going to go well. People are going to get hurt. Your life is going to become a mess. It is not going to turn out how you think it's going to turn out. And we read those warnings. We hear those warnings. And what do we do? Oftentimes when we're living in our flesh, we say, no, we're going to figure this out ourselves. I'm going to fight my own battles. I'm going to find something that will give me the satisfaction, that will give me the confidence that I think that I need. And we reject the Lord's leadership in our lives. And just like the nation of Israel, we experience the heartache of that choice. But God's character has not changed. If we don't want him to have that position in our lives, he will let us go. He doesn't force his rule and reign in our lives. He offers it and he freely gives it, but he does not force it. And so the nation of Israel got their king. And they got a man named Saul. And it started out looking like Saul was going to lead them in great ways. But after a while, Saul quit listening to the voice of the Lord. He became confident in himself and he started to lead in his own ways. And the nation severely suffered as a result. But God didn't give up on his promise he made to Abraham that kings are going to come from you. And so God raised up a new king. And this time... It was a king that God wanted to choose. It was a king, David, this man who didn't look like a king. He didn't act like a king. He didn't seem like a king, but he had the heart that feared the Lord above all else. And David had a desire to please the Lord and to lead the people. And so David came and he was a blessing to the nation of Israel. And so as David became king, God came and made a covenant with him as well. So we see all throughout the Old Testament, God coming and he keeps renewing this covenant. And these covenants sound a little bit different, but they're really just renewing this same idea over and over and over. And so he comes to King David and he makes this promise. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. And your throne shall be established forever. Now think about hearing that as King David. Not only do you get to be king, but God says, I'm going to establish your family and someone coming from your line who's going to rule forever. Forever's a long time. And this isn't just a forever until life ends or until generations end. This is an eternal forever. 
that God is promising David, there is coming one from your line who's going to rule and reign for all eternity. Do you think David could really grasp what that meant? Probably not. But he knew and he trusted the Lord's word. He trusted that God would do what God would say he was going to do. And so David, during the time of David's leadership, the nation of Israel thrived. He expanded their nation. They defeated their enemies. But most importantly, God or David restored the worship of God to the nation of Israel. Under Saul, the nation had rejected God and God's presence had left the nation. But under David's leadership, they brought the presence of God back to the nation. And once again, they were following the Lord as the true king. Things were looking really good. And the people were thinking, maybe David is the one who God has promised all along. But we know the story of David, and he failed. And David's failure ended up leading to more heartache, and eventually, in just a couple generations later, the entire nation was divided and basically gone and destroyed. All hope seemed lost. And it seemed, once again, as we've studied over and over in these genealogies, it seemed like all hope was gone and that God's promises had failed. But some 200 years later, this prophet named Isaiah writes, and he reminds the people once again, even though everything looks hopeless and it looks like God is a liar, he says, one day this is gonna come true. And he says, and unto us a child is born. Do you notice here, he's talking like this has already happened. Because in his mind, this was so real and so, so, he was so confident that there's no question God is going to do this. So he says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So some 200 years later, all hope has seemed lost and the nation is really not being led by anyone godly at this point. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, I want you to tell him this. One day a child's going to come. This child's going to be unlike any other child. This child is going to raise up, and he's going to become a king. But his kingdom and his nation is going to be unlike anything you've ever seen or experienced. When it comes to his reign, it's going to be one of peace. How many nations and kingdoms have ever been marked by peace? But of his peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David, his kingdom will be established. And he's going to reign and rule with justice from that time forever. Do you hear how that promise is being repeated over and over? There's coming one. There's still coming one. You thought it was David. It wasn't David. But there's coming a child who will change everything. And I love how this verse ends. How do we know this is going to happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
Throughout scripture, we see these different names of the Lord. This one here, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. Basically, the Lord who can do whatever he wants to do, he will make sure that this is going to happen. You can be confident in this reality. And so maybe for a little while, the people had a spark of hope. Okay, God is going to do what he said he's going to do. But did he do it quickly? He sure did it. And so the people waited and waited until some 700 years later, 700 years after this prophecy was given in Isaiah, we see that verse we read about a few moments ago. When these wise men came from the east and they came to King Herod and they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Think how remarkable that is. These men who weren't part of the nation of Israel, they didn't live anywhere near there. They knew all the promises God had made. They knew the prophecies given before and they knew this child being born is the one. The one we have waited for for thousands of years is now coming. Where is he? Because even though he's a baby, we have come to worship him because he is the king. Now, this was a surprising reality. No one expected him to come this way. But do you see here the confidence that these people had? And so I want, I want to just, just help you to see this for a minute. The Bible doesn't really argue this. It doesn't try to prove the point right here. It doesn't give us 12 reasons why Jesus is the king. It simply states it as a fact. And yet when we start to read the gospels with this lens of the king has come, I want you just to hear for a minute some facts about this king. Well, we already looked at, it was prophesied, Jesus was prophesied as the king before he was ever born. Here at his birth, he was declared to be the king. A little while later, when it comes to his baptism, he's anointed as the king, and the voice from heaven says, behold, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. A little while later, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as a king. He goes into these trials before the, king, before the kings of that time, and they say, are you the king? And he says, it is as you have said. So he claims to be the king. Throughout his earthly ministry, he is recognized as the king by his disciples and by his enemies. He, demonst- he sacrificed himself as the king when he was nailed to the cross and died in our place with a purple robe and a crown of thorns on his head with a plaque over him that says, Behold, the King of the Jews. Even in their mocking, they were declaring, This is the King. He sacrificed himself for his people as the King. But it didn't stop there. He demonstrated his kingship by resurrecting and defeating death three days later. Not only is he the King of this world, he's the King even over death. And after he resurrected, he ascended back to the, sit next to his father on the throne. And right now he is sitting enthroned as the king. And one day, every knee on heaven and earth will bow before him as the king when he comes back to judge the world in justice as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is who our King Jesus is. 
And it all started way before he was even born. It started generations before when God promised Abraham, kings will come from your line. And when he promised David, your king will reign and rule forever. And when he told Isaiah, this king will make a nation and a kingdom that is marked by peace and it will never end. And how do we recognize him? He's going to come as a child. This is how Scripture demonstrates and declares King Jesus. It's who he is. Now, it doesn't matter whether when you walk through these doors today, you may not have known that's who he was. You may not believe that's who he is. You may not care that's who he is. You may not trust that that's who he is. It does not change reality. Because the fact of the matter is, truth is truth, and God's truth is absolute So even if we don't believe Jesus is king, that doesn't change reality. Jesus is king. And so it brings us to this really important question. How will I respond to King Jesus? At the end of the day, and at this time as we celebrate Christmas, this is the question that matters for every single one of us. And this is a question every person who's ever lived has answered whether they recognized it or not. So I want to quickly look at Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to see three different ways in Matthew chapter 2 that people respond to King Jesus. And I want to do this, and all while we're doing this, I want you and I'm asking you to search your own heart to think, how am I responding to King Jesus when it comes to the way I live my life? Because it's my greatest hope today that you get to know King Jesus as he really is. And so let's look at these three different responses. The first thing we see is that some oppose him. And we see this in King Herod. In verse 3 of Matthew 2, when Herod the king heard this about this new king being born, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now this word troubled, it means stirred up. It's like when you get into a pool. Have you ever been in a small pool and you put like a tube on and you jump up and down and you start to make those waves? And at first, the waves are kind of small, but as the waves are coming and they're crashing back into and you keep jumping, those waves just get big, right? It's a really fun thing. But it's just like it's the, the waters are being stirred up and the waves are rising and they're building and they're festering and eventually they start to just burst out of the pool. That's the picture of what's happening inside of Herod at this moment. When he heard these wise men say, there's a king that was born, inside of him is stirring up this rage and this anger and all of this, and it just, it has to come out. That's the response that some people have to King Jesus. They simply hear his name and this rage builds within them. And, they, and, if, and if you were to say that you follow and you love Jesus, there's this rage and this automatic hatred even towards you because they so adamantly oppose him. They hate his name. They hate everything he stands for. They hate the truth that he claims. They hate everything about him. And we see this all over our world today. It's not just an indifference to Jesus. It's an absolute hatred of him. But a few verses later, I want you to see what, what does that hatred do? When somebody opposes Jesus in that way, what does it lead to? Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all of its districts from two years old and under, 
according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. That's such an easy verse to read. Slow down for a minute and put yourself in Bethlehem. Some of you out here holding babies right now. Every male child in this city put to death because of how much Herod hated King Jesus. We celebrate Christmas. It's a time of joy. It's a time of delight. The message of Jesus brought a hostility and a hatred and a brokenness that we can't even really fathom. The grief that would have overcome this city because of one man's hatred of King Jesus. Now, maybe there's been times in our life where we have opposed Jesus in that way, and maybe it didn't lead to us going out and murdering other people, but I can promise you, if you have lived in opposition of Jesus in this way and in hatred of him and in hatred of everything it stands for, you have hurt the people around you. You can't oppose King Jesus like this and not hurt others. But the truth is, I would venture to say most of you in this room probably don't fall into this category, but this next one is a whole lot more relatable for a lot of us when we're kind of struggling with our flesh. Some of us just kind of dismiss him. In verses four and five, after King Herod was really angry, he sent for for his, his wise men. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them of the Christ, of where this Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is written by the prophets. Now, you may not read that and just see this dismissive attitude, but let me just paint this picture for you. Do you know who the chief priests and the scribes were? They were the leaders of the worship of the nation of Israel. They were the experts of the law. They were the experts of the prophets. They were the experts of all of the Old Testament writings. These guys could have quoted every verse we looked at today. They knew Isaiah chapter 9 said, there's a child coming. And I want you just to stop and think here. Here they are. They're in Jerusalem. They're about six miles from Bethlehem. They hear rumors that the king who has been prophesied for thousands of years in all of their writings has been born six miles away. And what do they do? They never go see. They never go check it out. They never asked the wise men how they knew this was Jesus. They never, we don't have any record of them going back to Isaiah and studying again and saying, did we miss something? Could this be the king? Do we need to tell others about him? They do none of that. They simply answer the king's question like he just asked them what day of the week it was. They completely dismissed King Jesus. Six miles from where they were. Who would you be willing to walk six miles to see? Probably a lot of people. How about the king that you have waited thousands and thousands and thousands of years for? And this is an attitude that's a lot easier to creep into our lives when we're living in the flesh. It's just kind of this indifference to him. You know, I I don't really care if I go see him today. I don't really care if I meet with him. I don't really care if he's a part of my day. I I don't really care if I go worship with my brothers and sisters. I don't really care 
He's there. That's cool. I'll call on him when I want to, but it's not really a big deal in my life. Would I walk six, would I kind of, would I go out of my way today to meet with him? Is he really the king of my life? I, I trust him. I believe in him for salvation, but I'm still going to do what I want to do. Now, if we're honest, that dismissive attitude is so fast to creep in when we are struggling with our flesh. Because everything in our flesh wants to be the king of our own lives. And to be king of our own lives, we have to dismiss King Jesus. But there's one more response, and it's the response that I hope we are just drawn to and driven to this Christmas season. And it's the response of the wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And when they'd opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's the third response we have to King Jesus? To get down on our knees, to get down on our face and say, Lord, you are king. You are the king of this world, and you are the rightful king of my life. That's the response he deserves. And it's the response he wants all of us to have because he knows it's the response that leads us to the abundant life he longs for us to have. It's the response that lets us taste a little bit of heaven here and now on this earth. So what does that look like to bow to him as our king today? That means I actually ask him when it comes to my life and my day, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond in this situation? Not what I think, not what I've been trained to do, not what I assume. What do you want? Because you're the king. The answer is yes. Just tell me what you want. We bow to him as king when we say, Lord, I really want to do this thing that scripture calls sin, but you're telling me not to, and so I'm going to follow you even though everything in me wants to do that. That's the act of bowing. It's saying, not my will be done, but yours, because you are the king. Can I be honest with you? We all make lousy kings of our own lives. We make lousy kings of our families. We make lousy kings of our workplaces and our churches. But you know who is a great king and who makes a great king? It's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when we bow to him and we live our lives in submission to him, things work as he promised they will. So as you get ready to sing together in worship of this king, I invite you to stand. And in just a minute, we are going to sing praises to the king. He is the king. I ask you in these quiet moments just to evaluate your own heart to be honest before the Lord. You can't fool him. We don't trick him. He knows. Just be honest with him. Maybe this week we've been dismissive of him because we've had a thousand things on our mind and we've just kind of dismissed him. In this moment, just tell the Lord that. 
I pray that if you don't know this king, maybe you've never become part of his family through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that today is the day that you come to know him, that you would receive the greatest Christmas gift of all, eternal life through the death of the king. If you don't know him and you're not confident of your salvation, you don't know where you will spend eternity, you don't know that you will be part of his kingdom forever, please let me introduce you to the king today. He's got a gift for you. He wants you to have it. But maybe you already know this king. Maybe you have trusted in him for salvation. But maybe he's not really the king of your life as he should be. Maybe there's things in your life that you know you are not saying yes to the king. Can I encourage you in this moment as he is drawing you in and he is urging you to submit yourself to him, give yourself to him. Trust him for he is good and his kingdom is one of peace and justice forever. It's hard to get off the throne of your life, but it is always a decision that's worth it. It's my greatest prayer for you today that you would know this king. Father, we come to you. We recognize Jesus Christ as the king that he is. I thank you so much for this church family. I thank you for the ways that they encourage me and they push me towards you and they they are just such a blessing. Father, I pray that we would be a church who constantly, every day, bows as bows to you as the king of our church and of our lives and of our homes and of our families. I pray, Father, in these moments, you would draw every heart to you. Give us a greater glimpse of who you are. Open the windows of heaven and let us just see you for who you are. You are a good king and a faithful king. Help us, Father. Our flesh is weak. We are so quick to oppose you and to dismiss you. Father, help us in this Christmas season and this year to come to bow to you more as our king. Father, you are so good to us. It's in the great name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope that you were encouraged by the teaching of God's Word. If you have questions or would like more information about our church, you can find us at www.robbinsvillefbc.org or call the office at 828-479-3423. God bless you and have a great day.